I'm going to be talking to you about why James talks about the tongue being so important, but the tongue is the final point of all the other things he's been talking about. And I'm going to try to bring you through a process right up to where you'll understand what he says and why he says what he says about the tongue. In saying that, let me just try to give you this morning a preview or a little rundown of what James was trying to say. As you know, there are several different men by the name of James in the New Testament. The one that wrote this particular book, the Epistle of James, is the brother of Jesus Christ. It was written in about 62 A.D., about 30 years after Christ had been crucified and resurrected from the dead. The church had scattered and gone throughout the earth. It was about eight or nine years before the destruction of Jerusalem. So just to give you a little bit of a historical concept here, the book of James, according to Martin Luther, was a very strawy, that's a very hard word to say in enunciate, strawy epistle, he thought, because God had given him the revelation of one truth, and that is that the just shall live by faith without the works of the law. Now, having come out of a Roman background, Roman Catholic background, that was a very important message to him that we no longer were saved by doing good works or trying to make or earn our way into heaven or having to go through a hot spot before we hit heaven or all those good things. He, he was able to see the truth that the just shall live by faith alone. Martin Luther got very excited about that, but when he came over to James, he, he had difficulty evidently understanding that James was teaching the same truth, but just from the other side of the door. Now by that, James starts talking about the fact that faith without works is dead. And he's trying to balance it out. You, have you ever heard that? Somebody saying, I taught you something, now I want to teach you something to balance it out a little bit. Well, that's what James was doing concerning the book of Romans. And, and James is saying here that works are the evidence and the groundwork of the fact that there has been a work done in your life. Someone put it this way, you can give without loving, but it's impossible to love without giving. If you genuinely love, you will genuinely give. If you're genuinely saved, then the evidence will come forth in works. You're not working or to get saved, but you're working because you are saved. And in the other book of Romans, he was trying to emphasize the fact, quit trying to do it by your own effort. Quit trying to climb up to heaven by your own work. You can't do that, which is absolutely true. But on the other hand, if you are genuinely saved, no one can keep you from loving and giving you because it becomes a part of your new nature. Now that shouldn't be too difficult to understand, but there have been many people that have trouble, have had trouble with it. It's interesting to me as I look at the first chapter of James, how the brother of Christ had come to recognize the Lord for whom he really was. The first verse says, James, the doulos, again that same word that Paul used, the bond slave, the willing bond slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now that greeting meant actually also rejoice. Rather than writing to you with a greetings of rejoicing to, to share with you something that Jesus Christ has given to me to tell you about. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into temptation. Now, by the way, the temptation he's talking about here is not the temptation into unto sin, but he's talking about the trials and the tests that God allows to come into your life. Like with Abraham, with Isaac, Abraham, God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, up in the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now, that was a temptation. That was a test. That was a trial. Now, James says, when these things come into your life, rejoice, count it all joy, get excited, realize that God's getting ready to perform a miracle in your life. Have you learned that in your life yet? I see some people, when temptation or testing comes into their life, you can step on their lower lip. They could eat oats out of a three-foot stove pipe. They get so discouraged and so down in the dumps and just dragging around. And, and James says, now look, I've got, I've got something for you to see here. When temptation and testings come to you, realize that there's a purpose in it. He goes on to knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire Wanting nothing. Praise God. He says, don't ask God to get you out of the temptation, but patiently wait on God to bring you through the temptation. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. Now, he's talking about evidently when the time comes, he's applying especially here, when those times of temptation come, you must say, Lord, I don't understand everything that's going on here, but I ask you to give me wisdom and insight to see what you're trying to show me in my life right now. And I think that's the best time to start looking to God and saying, Lord, what do you got to say to me here? What, what is the purpose of this thing in my life? Let him ask of God, but giveth all to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, or doubt not, and it shall be given him. 
but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Now, I want to emphasize this verse because this is what James is going to talk about all the way through, and he's going to be trying to describe it more thoroughly with the tongue. But this is the key of all these things I talked about, how you hear, what you think, renewing your mind, what you hold in your heart. It all has to do with this very thing right here. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, to its extreme, a double-minded person is becomes schizophrenic. This is exactly what he's talking about here. If you are asking something from God, don't waver in it. I've given the illustration before, but it's so apropos here, where the woman got up and said, Lord, I'm asking you to remove that mountain out from behind my house. I don't want it there anymore. And you said, if I can, if I'll believe that I can ask that a mountain be cast into the sea and it'll happen. Lord, I'm asking you right now to cast that mountain into the sea. And she went to bed and got up the next morning, came to the window and looked out and said, just as I thought, it's still there. Now, James says, don't expect to receive anything of the Lord if that's the way you ask for. That's why he said in Mark, Jesus said in Mark, these signs shall follow them that believe. I say it again, if we don't believe that these things are going to happen, don't worry about it, they never will. These are given to those that will claim by faith everything that God has for them. Then let's skip up to verse 13. This is another very important piece of groundwork for us to understand before we get into why James gives us instruction concerning the tongue. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. I don't think I've ever understood that as well as I'm seeing it now after having the Lord laying this thing out for me last night. God doesn't tempt anyone. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Then skip down to verse 22. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, and he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, let's look back at the beginning of that verse again. It says, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Why did he call it the perfect law of liberty? He called it the perfect law of liberty because it works every time. It never fails. If we apply that law of faith, if we'll apply that law of obeying God's word and walking it out in faith, it can never fail. It has to work. We look into the perfect law of liberty. If any among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, now he starts to get to it, bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now, over into the second chapter, beginning with verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works, can faith save it? He's saying it's corresponding action. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be you warm and filled, God bless you, you know. Lord bless you now. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without my, thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. You can talk all you want to, James says, about how much faith you've got, but let me watch you. And if you have faith, it will manifest itself. You can go around saying you have faith all you want to, but before long it's got to come out whether you really do or really don't. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, vain man, that faith without works is dead? I don't know how many times I've had to use that scripture verse there in the uh, second chapter and verse 19. There's many people that have told me, oh, I, I, I believe, I believe. I said, what do you believe? And they said, well, I believe in Jesus. 
That's wonderful. What do you believe about Jesus? I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose again. I believe he's up in heaven right now. I said, whose sins did he die for? He died for my sins. I said, okay. If you were to die right now, where would you go? Well, I, I hope. Uh, I, I think. I, I sure hope that I'm, I'm doing the best I can. And all of a sudden I say, you know, look at James 2.19. It tells me that even Satan believes and trembles. Have you ever trembled with the belief that you've had concerning Jesus Christ? And I said, you know, it's not enough just to believe. There's a difference between believing and having faith in, putting your total dependence in, casting your total weight of the future and the past and the present onto Jesus Christ and say, I'm trusting him as my Lord and Master. I'm trusting that he paid the full price for my sin. I've repented of it. I've cast it away from me. I'm trusting him now. He's washed it away in his blood. I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And my justification, my righteousness is in Jesus Christ. There's a vast difference between that and having a religious experience. And you know, that's the trouble with many people in our churches today who are desperately looking for something to satisfy inside. But they're going around stuffing religious experiences inside. They're going to try this and try that. Some of them even try Jesus. And I, I have to say, you don't try Jesus. You either have him and make him Lord, or you don't have him. Now, with that background, turn to look at chapter 3 with me for just a few moments. James says, my brethren, be not many masters. That word in the Greek is teachers. Be not many teachers. Now, when he states this, he's emphasizing a particular type of teacher because he says, knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment or condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a mature or perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, that word teacher is bringing out the thought of someone who is critical of others or trying to set other people right, trying to straighten other people out, trying to tell other people where their problems are. You know, they see the speck in their eye and trying to get it out with a big beam in their own eye. He says, you be very careful when you step into that position where you begin to tell other people where they are and what they are and what's wrong in their lives. You know, there's a great desire today in many churches and in the hearts of many people, I want to be a leader. And James says, you be careful now because if you become a leader, you're stepping into an area where God begins to run you through a much finer comb and run you through a finer sieve that checks you out closer too. As you judge, God's going to judge you. As you begin to pick things out in other people's lives, God's going to begin to use a magnifying glass in your life. Many, many times we find that many so-called, self-called, spiritual teachers, the reason they get that impetus is because they're trying to look away from themselves. Now, I don't say this judgmentally. I say this because I've seen it happen so many times. Many times when they begin to look at the problems and look for faults in other people's lives, it's because they've got a problem in their own life and they're trying to avoid it. I think of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had stolen another man's wife. And Nathan said, uh, O king, Live forever. I, I have a story to tell you, and I, I, there, there's a situation that you need to judge. He said, There's a certain rich man over here that has just flocks of sheep and goats and all sorts of animals, has a large, large farm. I can use that term. And right next door to him, he has a man that has just one little ewe lamb, and he has cared for that ewe lamb from the time it was just a little one, has hand fed it, has stroked it, has kept it in its home. It was his favorite pet of the family, and he just tried to treat it so well. And, oh, King, this, this rich man went across the fence and went over to that man's yard and took his one ewe lamb and slaughtered it and served it for a banquet. What should we do to a man like that? Now, David became that teacher all of a sudden. This master all of a sudden, he said, what a vicious man that would be, that would do something like it. All that stuff that was his own, and run over and take that one man's only little ewe lamb, that man should die. Now, that's the kind of teacher that James is talking about here. Because Nathan reached out his, I'll bet it looked like a four-foot finger about that time to King David, and laid it right on the end of his nose, and he says, Thou art that man. But you see, David... In trying to be the teacher and the judgmental teacher at that moment when being presented with an opportunity to make a judgment, didn't even look at the beam that was in his own eye. And it's, it's, a, it's amusing how Jesus has a sense of humor. Because he was saying in, in the Gospels, he said, now you be careful when you go around trying to get this little tiny fleck out of someone's eye when you've got this moat. And by the way, the moat today would be like a great big telephone pole sticking out of your own eye. And he says, here come these Pharisees with this big telephone pole. He said, just a minute, hold still, and I'll see if I can get that fleck out of your eye. How expressive. 
I can just imagine the way in which that message was received by the Pharisees sitting in the congregation. But he said, that's what you've got to watch out for. James says, go long and reach out and grasp to be a master or a teacher or one who criticizes and judges others. Because he says, when you lay down your measurement, I'm going to lay, God's going to lay his measure stick right next to it on you. And I imagine about the time he got through talking about that other fellow with his one little ewe lamb, that David was feeling pretty small when Nathan said, Thou art the man to your life. Behold, he said, we put bits in, horses, in the horses' mouths that we may, they may obey us. We turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listens. May I ask you, who would the governor be? You see, he's talking about the tongue being the rudder. But the tongue, the rudder doesn't turn itself on a ship, and the bit doesn't turn itself on a horse. I can still remember an exciting experience in Lincoln, Nebraska years ago when we were in Coral Club when my wife understood the book of James, but it didn't work that way. She got on a horse, and it had a bit in its mouth, but it had learned how to take that bit in its teeth. And she said this way, and it said this way. It took off running with that bit in its teeth and ended up with its head inside of a milk truck and Beverly's shoes gone and all these things. But if you can get that bit out of their teeth and back into their jaw, you can just give a little tug, whoever's riding that horse, and it'll turn the whole horse. Literally, will stand them right up and make them roll over backwards if they jerk it hard enough that they've got a sensitive mouth. Well, the thing that the Lord has shown me is let people understand who that governor really is. I'm not going to tell you. I want you to think about that this week. Not the devil. Not the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about who that governor might be. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold... How great a matter a little fire kindles. Now that word matter there actually in the Greek is force. How great a forest fire a little spark kindles. Now we know that that's absolutely true. It doesn't take very much to spark a forest fire in our lives. I mean, you can take words and words are explosive. Look at the words that Lenin said and what's happened around the world. Look at the words that Hitler spoke and what happened around the world because of just a few words that came out of his mouth, like a spark hitting dry tinder and the whole world is set aflame. And we're going to get into the aspect also of positive and negative confession. Whatever you confess is what eventually you'll get, and what you confess you are is what you'll eventually become. Now, whether we like it or not, that's what the Word of God says, and this is the little creature right here that turns and sets our course. You know, still today, I have to catch my old practices and stop them right in the middle of a sentence. People say something to me, and, and, and you know, I, I find myself having to really stop it because it's the thing that turns the direction I'm going to be going into. I go around saying, well, with my luck, well, the way things have been going for me, brother, it's going to, you know, if, if anybody's going to get hit, it's going to be, you know, that old tongue just constantly saying problems, problems, problems. And I got to the end of that thing, and I said, Lord, I'm going to begin to just bite that off short. I'm going to begin to confess the Word of God. The thing is, what I feel or what I think, I'm going to confess the Word of God, and believe it or not, it is turning. How many of you believe it's beginning to turn? <laughs> Amen. It's beginning to turn for this preacher, I'll assure you. And I thank the Lord for it. But it won't happen until we understand how a great a force, this little spark, endless. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on, the, on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. Now, as I read that over and over again, the Lord just kind of told me to put that back in reverse. Read that in reverse, that verse. And you'll get the course of it. First of all, when we allow Satan to cause us to say the things that he wants us to say, our tongue is set on fire of hell. That's the first thing. The second thing that it does is it begins to set on fire the course of nature. It begins to cause us to become what we're saying. Satan sets the spark, and it begins to change our very being and our very nature, and the end result is it defileth the whole body. Before long, we are what we say. And I put it in the opposite order. It starts when we accept and receive that spark from Satan and begin to let it fly out of our mouth. 
it sets on fire the entire course of nature. Our whole direction begins to change when we say it. And then the end result is that it defiles the whole body. Let me give you an example. They would say, well, I understand that uh, ancient flu is going to hit this winter, and I, if it comes, it just is sure as shooting, I'll get it. Yes, sir. I, I, you watch and see. Now, when that Asian flu gets here, I'll get it. They'll get it. I mean, you say, now, that's ridiculous. Go, no, don't tell me it's ridiculous. You just be here. We'll, we'll go through the Word and we'll see exactly what the Word says. I'll receive the things that I will receive when I speak them. That little spark that Satan puts into us, that, well, yes, I guess I'm just going to take it. Before long, it begins to set on fire the whole course of nature. See, and we get up one morning, and Satan lays a little fever on us, and says, boy, I told you, here it comes. Look, see, i got a fever already. And before long, it defiles the whole body. That works. It starts here. little spark. But you see, if there's something that, no, it doesn't, I shouldn't say it starts here. This is where it becomes manifest. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. We've got to know what's in our heart. And we've got to know what's going into our heart. And we've got to know how to stop it from going into our heart. And how to set up a barrier and a guard that says you may and you may not. So that when the time of explosion comes, it will be like Satan found Jesus. It says that Satan came to him and found nothing in him. Satan comes and went, boo! Didn't work. Jesus didn't have any fear. God hadn't given him a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind. <sighs> he said, uh, if you mean the Son of God, uh, turn those stones into bread. You're hungry now. Jesus didn't let the physical appetite overrule the spiritual condition in his life. He said, the thus it's written, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. <clears throat> so he popped him with another. Jesus quoted the word. Oh, try it again. Satan couldn't find anything in him. You know, the biggest problem is we have to understand what we've been letting go into the hopper so that when the spark comes and what comes out of our mouth, we'll, we'll know what will come out of our mouth because we'll know what's in our heart. You say, well, how do you know that? I'll tell you the best thing to do is sit down sometime and let somebody ask you, tell me the most important thing in your life. What do you think about this? Or sit around and look around this congregation at different people in this congregation and say, uh, now, Hart, I want you to express to me the first thing that you think about that person when you look at it. You know, some lady might sit here and look across the room and say, mm -hmm, I see she's wearing a brand new dress this morning. Yep, got the form a little bit, you know. Huh? Oh, that's a little spark that comes out of something that's down here that came in from another direction. You know? have to be careful that. And once we find out what's getting in there, and we can cut that off and begin to rebuke what's in there and begin to get it filled with the Word, when Satan comes, we won't be able to find anything, will we? For every kind of beast and bird and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no God tame. Oh, it just says no man can tame, doesn't it? You know, I've, I've had people say, well, can't control your tongue. Your tongue's going to say what's going to say, because the Bible says that no man can tame the tongue. And then some people say, don't, that's just the slip of my tongue, and my tongue just can't be controlled. The Bible says you can't, no man can control the tongue. Oh, listen, I'll tell you, there's a better answer than that. We're going to find out what that is. If you want to write down Luke 18, 27, if you want to write down 2 Corinthians 10, 5, it might give you a little hint. Verse 9, therefore, bless we God, even the Father and Therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same time sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either vine, figs, so can no fountain. Both yield salt water and flesh. If it does, there must be two fountains down there below. Who's a wise man and indeed with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his work with meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable 
and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, first of all, it says there's wisdom that is from above. That's God's word, as it is shown to us and revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. The wisdom that is from above. And the last phrase there is so important for us to understand, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. It's without hypocrisy. We're going to talk about this more as we go along into this series on the tongue. But just let me say this. When you finally understand the purpose of this tongue, what it's supposed to speak and how it's supposed to speak and what causes it to speak, you begin to understand that the only time we're a hypocrite is when we don't say what God says. Someone goes around with the nose running and the eyes watering and the head throbbing and they say, I'm healed by the blood of Jesus Christ and I confess that healing and my body will come into order. Some guy says, boy, he's a hypocrite. Look at him, walking around, having to carry a box of Kleenex with him, saying that he's already healed. He's not a hypocrite. Anyone that confesses anything differently is really a hypocrite because the word of God says, by his stripes, we were healed. Now, my body may not have come into the understanding and, or, and follow, come, come into obedience to that word yet, but that doesn't make any difference. I stand upon what I know to be so. Right now, I am not in my glorified body, but you cannot convince me that I'm not going to have a glorified body. I've never seen the book of life. I've never looked into that book of life, but you cannot convince me that my name has not been written in the book of life, and I'm not being hypocritical by telling you that my name is written in the book of life. And if I'm healed by the blood of Jesus Christ, even though I don't walk, can't experience it right now, I can still confess it until my body gets in line. And I'm not being a hypocrite. I'm being a hypocrite if I say that God's word is true and confess something else. That's being hypocritical. If I begin to say that, well, rationality tells me I better keep my mouth shut until this thing straightens up, you know, and then I'll begin to talk about healing again, then that's being hypocritical. Jesus said to the lepers, all these lepers came to him, go show yourselves to the priest. And it says, as they went. He, they weren't healed. As they went, they were healed. Praise the Lord. James, the third chapter. I want to read you verses 1 through 10 again. James, again, is writing to Christians. My brethren, be not many teachers, those who analyze and correct and check out the lives of other people, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. As we said, the word says that in the same way in which you judge, you shall be judged. And what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a mature or perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, I want you to notice something here at the very beginning, what James is telling us. He's saying, you show me a man who can bridle his tongue and not offend in words. A person who has his tongue controlled, and by the way, we're going to find out how to control the tongue. Show me a man that's mature enough that he doesn't go around offending people with his words, and I'll show you a mature or a completely mature Christian man or woman. When you come around someone and they say something that offends or hurts or cuts, rather than get mad at them, just recognize that they need much prayer because God is working in them to mature them, and they haven't come to maturity yet. I don't know about you, there are many times when I think, well, I'm coming to some maturity here, and then all of a sudden a slip of the tongue comes out and I offend, and I say, oh, Lord, now there's an area that really needs to be worked on. It's just evidence that I'm not matured yet in you. But he says a mature man or a mature woman will be someone who does not offend with their tongue. Can you count them on more than one hand, the people you know that are mature enough that never offend someone with their tongue? Would you dare start counting those that you know that are not mature enough yet because they still offend with the tongue? Husbands and wives? I mean, we usually keep up a pretty good guard when we're outside, but how about when we're home? I think that's where we have to watch it with our loved ones or the ones that we're closest to. We drop the mask and we begin to just feel free, but he says a mature man never offends with, any, with, this, with words. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which, though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Now the helm does the turning, but the governor turns the helm, or the rudder. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a forest, I told you last week, that is the actual word, how great a forest, a little fire kindleth. 
and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on the course of, on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. And again, I said reverse that. It is set on fire of hell, and then it sets the sets on fire the course of nature, and then it defiles the whole body. I believe that's the order in which it happens in the life of an individual. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Now, isn't it interesting? In verse 8, he says that we cannot tame the tongue, and yet up in verse he said, if any man offend not in word, the same as a mature man. So somebody must be able to do something with the tongue to cause it to be what it ought to be. And that's the thing we want to check into. Verse 10, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Say that last phrase with me. My brethren, these things ought not to be. There are many people that have gone around, Christians that say, well, you know, the word of God says no man can tame his tongue. But they forget to say that James, what James said, James said, these things ought not to be in the believer. If you can't tame the tongue, then you find out the source of the power of that tongue and tame it. Get it tamed. And the tongue will be taken care of and put into a bridle. And once we're matured spiritually, this will happen in the life of an individual. In fact, over in the first chapter of James, it might be interesting for you to note, first chapter in the 26th verse, he said we can't tame the tongue, but he doesn't say we can't put a bridle on it in a bit. Verse 26, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Some years ago, I read a, an illustration that the Lord brought back to my mind as I was thinking on this. That out in the islands, some years ago, the missionaries were having a great revival. They had gone on this island, learned the language, and the people were beginning to receive Christ, and many of them turning to Christ. And the witch doctor was becoming very upset with the situation. And in the midst of the revival, suddenly an epidemic hit this village. One after another after another were beginning to drop over dead. And of course, the witch doctor immediately said, this is what these people that come preaching this message have brought with them. They are really deceiving us. And now you see the gods are angry with us and they're destroying us. They're killing us all off. We must get rid of these missionaries. We must destroy them before they destroy the gods destroy us because God's not pleased with this message. The missionaries were very concerned. They knew it wasn't their message, and they knew it wasn't the gods that were doing this thing to them. But the evidence was that since they had come to the village and revival had broken out, now this vast epidemic had hit this large tribe. So the missionaries called for some help, and some engineers and scientists flew in that were Christian people, and they began to check to find the source of this epidemic, and they found that there was something wrong with the water. That particular island had a reservoir up in the mountains, a natural reservoir that they had piped water down into the village. And they found out that there was something wrong with the water. And when they went up to the cistern and got down into the cistern, they found that a, that a wild sow and its piglets had slipped and fallen into the cistern and had just rotted there in that cistern. And the poison and the putrefaction from those bodies had gotten into the water. And as they were drinking the water in the village, it was beginning to kill people with an epidemic, the germ. And so they had to go in and clean out that cistern completely. And when the clear water began to flow, the, the epidemic was cleared up. Now, the thing that spoke to my heart is that many, many times people will listen to what people say and say, my, but they're nasty. My, they just need to have their, their mouth sewn shut, that, the, the vile words that come out of their mouth. I just don't understand it. And they fail to realize that their tongue is only the end result of putrefaction that comes from behind the tongue. And that's where we need to go. And that's what we need to check out more carefully. Where do our words come from? Matthew, the 12th chapter, and verses 34 and 35. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? Jesus was speaking now to the Pharisees. In fact, we'll go back one verse. He says, either make a tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the, what? Heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. We see here, and I'm going to get into the latter part of that later on, we see that in an evil man, evil words come out. In a good man, good things come out. But we're going to find that many, many times there is a combination or a mixture of it, and that's what James is talking about. 
One minute we bless God, the next minute we curse men. What's happening? Why has that happened in the life of an individual? Well, our words reflect the attitude and the condition of our hearts at all times. Whatever spills out just simply indicates what is inside. Solomon said it very well in Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, and the 7th verse. He said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And that's why words come out the way they come out of our mouth in every situation of life. What is the heart when we look at the scripture? Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of detailed, analytical discussion in it. I try, wanted to try to make it as simple as I can for you. Basically, when the Word of God speaks about the heart, in some cases, it's talking about the actual organ, the heart. But in many instances, it's talking about the seat of our emotions, the, the seat of our passions, the seat of our appetites. Now, not just the soul, but all that makes up the, the, the true center of a man's life. For example, some people say, well, it's all in the mind. Not necessarily. When, when we get scared, we don't go and say, oh, my, I'm scared. We usually go, oh, my, I'm scared down here, don't we? Because down in here is something, here in this area is something that is, comes from us. And Jesus said, out of their innermost being, and I think we could say out of their heart or their spirit, shall flow rivers of water. Now, there is something that is constituted in the Word of God as a heart that is the center of our passions and our emotions and the center of our appetites, and, and it stands as the center of all of our moral and spiritual and intellectual life. Now, that's what the Word of God is talking about when it talks about the heart. And the word says that God searches not the mind, God searches not the lips, but God searches the heart. Now that's why it was so important for Jesus to come and to straighten out the doctrine that the Jewish people had. He said, now I know that it says thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, whosoever what? Look upon a woman with lust in his heart, hath already committed adultery. But what was he saying? He said, I'm not looking at your outward actions. I'm looking at what's down in the heart because the Lord searches the heart. Jeremiah 17.10. Would you turn to it with me? I want you to see where God is looking at all times. And you know, this, this can become a beautiful thing for the believer, but a terrifying thing to the unbeliever. Because many times unbelievers will put on a facade, a religious uh, appearance, and a whitewash outside, and they go to church and they feel very secure until they begin to understand that God isn't looking at the outside at all. God's looking at the heart. And he sees the heart of every man. Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. I, the Lord, search the heart. Heart is variously used sometimes in the scriptures. Your mind, your understanding, your will, your emotions. All put together, the decision-making element of self-consciousness. And that's why it says, you have to hide the word of God away in your heart that you might not sin against the Lord. Into their heart, as the word of God calls. And that's what we talked about this morning. Now, the things I wanted to bring out, and I, and I haven't seen it on any other teachings that I've had, but it's in the word of God, and I thought I should bring it out, and that is, God is always talking about the imaginations of the heart. Now, you know, it, it, if you don't have a good imagination, you don't enjoy jokes. I, I think that's one reason why I've always enjoyed hearing jokes and telling jokes down through my life, because I have a very, very vivid imagination. When somebody begins to tell me a story, I can just add all the color to it and all the pictures around it. But the trouble is, when I was back here, I was putting the wrong color to it. My imagination just went wild. When anyone began to tell me a story or a life experience or something that I could experience, that old imagination just went wild and just all the flesh and all the carnality would roll out. You see, and God is looking at the heart. He says he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He sees all these things coming into the soul of the individual and into their mind, into their emotions, into their will, into their imagination. He sees that start up. God says, that's what I'm looking at. Don't look at the outer, outward structure. I'm looking at the heart. And in the heart, that imagination is the thing that causes a man to go further and further and further away from God or causes a man to serve God with all of his heart. Now, the imagination, I again went to the IFBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. He just gave a short definition. It says, the image-making pictorial faculty of the mind's reproducing and recombining former thoughts and experiences. It's that ability that we have not only to remember things, but to add to it and draw a little information from here and over here and restructure it and make it to be something else and bigger and bigger or smaller or smaller. We can just imagine in our imagination just exactly what we want to. Now, the, the, the Word of God says 
that back in the book of Genesis, when God had to come and judge the people on earth, he said because anything that they imagine, they can do. Their imagination did just really come to a place where it was a controlling factor in their life. Well, let's just look at a few verses concerning imagination. Genesis 8.21 tells us that every person has that element of imagination in their life. And if they're only getting their, their source of material from the flesh, then they're, in pro- they're going to have difficulties. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. After God judged the earth, he said, I won't judge it like this again, but I, I realize that the imagination of man's heart is evil from the time he's a child on. And I didn't have to be very old before my imagination was able to go wild and just think of all sorts of problems. All sorts of things. You know, I could sit in the, on a corner and in no time imagine in my mind how I could get into trouble. I didn't have to be very old to do that either. Like I told you, my daddy used to tell me if I didn't get at least one spanking a day, I was sick. He knew I was sick, wasn't feeling well. Because that imagination of mine would just work overtime to find some way to get into trouble. Jeremiah 7.24. God is speaking here in Jeremiah 7.24 concerning backslidden Israel. Let me read verse 23 with it because it's very helpful there. But this thing commanded I them, saying, this is God speaking, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. They wouldn't listen to what God had to say. They wouldn't be listening. In other words, inclining your ear, have your ear set, cocked, you know, to hear God speak to you. You know what that's like? To go out and go throughout the day just saying, Lord, I, I'm listening. If you've got something to say to me, I, I'm just listening. I think the best example of having your ear inclined towards something was the story I read in Reader's Digest years ago of a man who came home from a business trip early in the middle of the night and he had forgotten his key and he went to the front door and pounded on the door and couldn't awaken his wife. He went around to the bedroom window and pounded on the window as hard as he could, and he couldn't awaken his wife. And finally, he got a unique idea. He, he suddenly just got his voice very soft and said, Mama! He says his wife was out of bed, her feet are on the floor, and the light was turned on in a split second. Now, why was that? He knew that she was such a good mother when she couldn't hear anything else. She'd hear that cry of the baby. Her ear was inclined to hear the cry of her baby. And that's what God's saying here. He says, you wouldn't incline your ear. You didn't go around saying, Lord, speak for your servant heareth. So consequently, you just followed the wicked imaginations of your evil heart. And you went backward, not forward. In Romans, the first chapter, God speaks of mankind and gives a picture of mankind. And by the way, if you ever want to get your picture taken, don't go to God's shop. If you go to a photographer, he will really dress it up. And when you look at it, you'll say, oh my, this really does me justice. No, it does you mercy. Because he'll remove the wrinkles and the marks and the scars and the bumps and the, all those marks that are not attractive. He'll remove them. And when you get the final picture, it won't look like you. But you'll think, boy, that's, that's the image you have of yourself. Oh, you handsome looking creature, don't you ever die. You know, that's, that's the way we tend to look at ourselves many times. But when God takes a picture, he doesn't trim up and he doesn't touch up the picture at all. And he tells us what men are, are really like in Romans 1 and 2. But the interesting part there is verse 21 of the first chapter. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their what? Imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. You won't have to turn to it, but in Proverbs, the sixth chapter and the 18th verse, God is talking about the seven abominations that he hates. And one of those is an heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Now, the reason this is so important is because to the non-Christian, non-believing man, when all this information comes into his soul and into his mind and intellect and sensibility and his will, his imagination begins to work on these things and he makes decisions based upon that wicked imagination and his words that come out of his mouth are the end result of what he has received through his heart. And if his heart is filled with wicked imaginations, when those words come out, they are going to have devices of wicked works also. The Word of God says in James that it's, the tongue is then set on fire by hell itself. I'm trying to get you to be able to see both sides of this. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. 
Now, what happens, though, when this individual gets saved? The Word of God says that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. I want you to see the process, the basic process that takes place when a person who has been dead in trespasses and sin is convicted of his sins by the Spirit of God, sees himself as God sees him, he repents of his sin, and by faith reaches out and trusts Christ as Lord and Master of his life, the procedure that takes place. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just read to you the first ten verses here. Paul is speaking to the church of Ephesus. He says, And you have he quickened or brought to life who were dead in trespasses and sin, who were, what? Dead. Spirit dead. No spirit whatsoever. All this information coming in through their body, out through their soul and their mind and will and emotions and their imagination. He said, Up to that time you were dead, but now God has quickened your spirit, brought your spirit to life. Who were dead in trespasses and sins, were in time past. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, which is the only source that we had for information, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, now here's the great turning point in this chapter, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved. Now, the first thing he said he did, he quickened us. Now, notice the second thing. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, first of all, he has quickened our spirit. Second, he raised us up, and we are seated now, positionally, at the right hand of the Father, with Jesus Christ in heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might serve the exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, he's saying, your salvation is nothing of yourself. First of all, it's the grace of God that brings us to redemption, the goodness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. It's the grace of God that causes us to understand spiritual truth, and by when His grace is bestowed upon us, and by the way, that word grace, I want you to understand what I'm saying when I say grace. Let me remove this a minute. Grace is God's active enabling force within us, giving us the desire and the power to do things God's way. That's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, not, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And why did God save us? That we might do good works. Now, here's some of good, Bill Gothard's good explanation. Grace is God's active enabling force within us, giving us the desire and the power to do things God's way. That's why it says, for by grace are you saved through faith. God, by giving us grace, causes us to have the power, the desire and the power to do the things he wants us to do. When we were in this condition... We were dead in trespasses and sins. We had no ability to do God's way, no ability to do God's will. Consequently, we could not please God in any way, but God, when he redeems us, gives us the desire and the ability to do his will and to do his work. I praise God that there was a time when I had to be honest and say, man, I had no interest in the things of God, but the night Jesus Christ came into my life, I suddenly had a longing and an urging in my heart to do whatever God wanted me to do. And then I found within me the power to do what I needed to do. It was the Spirit of God within me, giving me the power to do what I needed to do. Praise the Lord. That's good preaching, brother. Amen. Hallelujah. Keep it up. Now, uh, <clears throat> let me very quickly add here something, because a lot of people, of course, when they say, speaking about grace, I'm living under grace. I'm not living under the law. I want you to notice, first of all, that grace is not God's indulgence to let us do what we want to do. Let, let me first of all go back here to Ephesians 2, 8. Now, well, I, we just read it. For by grace are you saved through faith in that, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We can't work for our salvation. It's a free gift of God, and he gives us the ability and the power to do what he wants us to do. And it is not God's desire that to set us free to live any way we want to live. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we, who are dead to sin... Live any longer therein. 
The goal says, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, what's he talking about here? Back in that day, the Romans had a philosophy going that was very unique. It's almost like some people that I've heard of today. They begin to say, well, I'm under grace now. I'm not under the law anymore. I can just do anything I want to do. They said, look, if God's grace is manifested when we've done wrong and he forgives us, it magnifies the grace of God. In order for people to see how gracious God is, let's go on and keep sinning more. Let's sin more and more and more. And the more we sin, the more God forgives us for it. The more people look and say, my, how gracious God is. Look how much grace he's bestowed on us. He just keeps forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. So they said, let's go out and find the foulest sins we can find. Let's do them. And then we'll turn and say, God, forgive me. And go do it again and say, God, forgive me. And everybody said, oh, isn't that wonderful how gracious God is? Paul says, don't you know that you were, you were crucified with Christ and buried with him? And now you've risen to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus? You're not to walk after the flesh anymore. You're to walk after the Spirit. And if you walk after the Spirit, you cannot and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Impossible. Second thing is, grace does not remove earthly penalties for breaking God's law. My sweet daddy up there in heaven, he'll just let me do just about anything I want to do. And I mean, I'm free. If the sun sets me free, I'm free indeed. I can just do anything I want to do. No, I want you to look at what it says in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. This is written to the church. This is written to believers. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth through his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth through the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Grace does not mean that we can go ahead and uh, do what we want to do, and God's going to remove all of eternity from us. Now that's why he says in another place that all of his children, he chastens them betimes. I don't know if you've ever been thanked by the Lord, but I'll tell you, it's not a pleasant experience. But the Lord says he will chasten his children if they get into places of disobedience. He'll lay the rod to their back. In fact, he said, if you don't have that experience, you're not my child because every son of God, I chasten. Third thing, grace is not a replacement of God's laws, but rather the desire and the power to fulfill the principles of the law. Romans 3.31 